Hi everyone, I'm Heaven. I'm Tracy. And welcome to another round with Heaven and Tracy. Ow, ow! We're here. It's early. Doesn't matter. We're professionals. Heaven's <laughs> actually on vacation right now. I paused my vacation to be here with you all because we have a very exciting guest. Aww. Who's the guest, Heaven? It is the creator of The Wire and the newest HBO miniseries, Show Me a Hero. David Simon, everyone. Ah, yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Yes, we're very excited. Everyone's back. What else we got for the people, Tracy? We're going to hear from some babies today. What do you mean hear from some babies? Babies are going to give other babies advice on how to be a good big brother or big sister. Yes. Since Northwest has a new brother coming, do we know? Yes, a new brother. A new brother. So, Northwest, you're welcome. <laughs> These babies are going to get you together. I'm going to personally deliver this to Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> Just walk up to the doorstep. This Hello, is Northwest Home. Yeah. <laughs> this is all an elaborate ploy. <laughs> all right, let's get on with the show. Woo, 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 woo. Before we get into everything else, I feel like we would be remiss to not acknowledge the VMAs, which came on MTV two nights ago. Heaven decided that she just couldn't with the VMAs. <laughs> So you were not going to force her to can. So we have here with us the person who I just decided is our resident VMA expert, Miss <laughs> Hannah Gregorkis. Thank you for having me. I'm only slightly more able to can than heaven, I think. Well, um, I feel like but the, I, will, I will try. If Hannah's voice sounds familiar to you, it's because she was here on a very early episode, and now she is an employee of BuzzFeed.com. So hopefully, you will be reading her stuff. So you watch the VMAs. I watch the VMAs. Yes. What are your general feels? Oh. Mine too, same. <laughs> Just lots of sighing. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, every time I watch the VMAs, I'm like, why did I do this to myself? Yeah. Oh, for the memes. For the memes. Yeah. But we also get to fume along with everybody else because there was some really awful shit that happened. Yes. There were also some really awesome things too, though. So should we start with awesome or awful? I feel like if we start with awful and build up. Smart. So awful thing number one, Molly was the host. Oh, well, yeah. And I feel like every five seconds she was just like screaming about how she smokes weed. And I'm just like, you trying so hard. And like you can get away with that, right? And we Mm -hmm. know why Miley as like, you know, poppy, Mm -hmm. like thin, like rich white girl can get away with being like marijuana every two seconds. Right, right. (laughs) It was not fun. Also, the hair. The faux locks that she had, like I was disappointed in Miley, which is a feeling that I did I didn't know that I could have. Um, oh. She's been doing a lot of really interesting stuff recently around gender and like just mm-hmm. being aware of social issues, and like you can tell she's actively learning. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like she's had a bit of a setback in the past few, yes. sort of beginning with her comments about Nikki that nobody <sighs> invited her to make. So Miley Cyrus in an interview with the New York Times sort of responded to some comments that Nicki Minaj had made about her video Anaconda um, not being nominated. And she said, Miley said, "Um, what I read sounded very Nicki Minaj, which if you know Nicki Minaj is not too kind. It's not very polite. I think there's a way you speak to people with openness and love. You don't have to start this pop star against pop star war. It became Nicki Minaj and Taylor in a fight. So now the story isn't even on what you wanted it to be about. Now you've just given E! News catfight. Taylor and Nicki go at it. 
was so tired. Like <laughs> Yeah. And it was just speaking out of turn. I mean, the the way that the conversation between Nikki and Taylor transpired, Taylor apologized for mm-hmm. speaking out of turn. Mm-hmm. For making something that was not about her about, about her. her. Exactly. And then Miley went and did the same thing after having the example of Taylor having to still learn. To right. still learn. And plus the thing that she was saying, like, Nikki Minaj is mean because she spoke out against racism in right. a not nice way. Right. Like what? 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 Like, what did you did you want her to like grab you on right and like hold your hand? Exactly. Did you want her to like walk through a meadow with you exactly. and like read you? You know, like Booker T. Washington. I don't know. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Uncomfortable. No. Miley, stop. At at no no. That's what I used to tell my niece. At at no no. So there was that, and then so there was this really great moment, which we'll get into, when Nikki addressed um, <laughs> Molly's comments. And I can't wait to talk about that. But there was also Rebel Wilson's bit that she did. Rebel Wilson comes out dressed like a cop or something, and she starts off. She's like, you know, I know a lot of people have problems with the police, and already at that point, you know, if you're gonna make a joke. You should not make a joke. Right. And of course she made a joke and it wasn't even a good joke. It was about like strippers who dresses like police officers right. or something. And it's just so insulting, you know, like, hey, I know this whole entire new civil rights movement is happening because the police keep killing black people. But let's like right. let's, let's let's make a joke about that. Right. And let's make a joke that's like somehow also mocking strippers, too. Right. So like, let's let's be doubly offensive here. Like, let's make <laughs> light of the fact that people are protesting and organizing mm-hmm. around pain and death and like systemic injustice. Mm-hmm. And also, let's take a crack at people who are like working. Right. I think I saw a tweet from um, the activist Duray that said, "You know, when was the last time you saw somebody like on an MTV stage making a Holocaust joke or a Sandy Hook mm-hmm. joke or something like that? Mm-hmm. Never. You know, right? I struggle sometimes when people say like you wouldn't make this joke about this group of people, right? Because there's mm-hmm. this way that we try to like pit different marginalized groups against each other. But right. when you look at TV, like yeah. system, like black people are so often the butt of jokes mm-hmm. in industries where black people literally make everybody else money. Right? Like exactly. There is no VMAs without black people. Exactly. Like you're taking our language, you're taking right. our style, and our you're aesthetic. Us. Yeah. Our like entire way of being and right. it's like how you entertain yourself and each other mm-hmm. and then you just smack us in the face and you're like, and that's oh, cool. oh your lives though those don't matter to us mm-hmm. right exactly so from terrible to fantastic yes Nicki Minaj Whew. first acceptance speech of the night mm. so mm-hmm. lit if you're a black girl it's like so energizing mm. and like validating and motivational Nicki gets on stage and I think she thanked her pastor first yes that was the best part oh that's when you knew it was Craig Dan. Right, you knew somebody was about to need prayer. <laughs> you were like, okay, the pastor knows. Like, that was a code word. It was like, hey. I know. It's like, before I do this, let me get prayed up. She goes from thanking her pastor to looking at Miley. I, I think there's still some debate over whether or not this was scripted or not. I'm leaning towards, no, it was not right. scripted. And she's like, but first let me get back to this bitch who had all this to say about me in the media. She was like, Molly was good and her voice got deep and she did like the the little look that black girls give you before like... Things are about to go down. Before it goes down. And Molly's face was priceless. She was just like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> What's good, Miley? Like, I mm. screamed in my bedroom. I screamed. Wait, wait, wait. I was like, let me look at Twitter. What's going on? Is this for real? <laughs> what just happened? Oh, my God. Please let it be real. And it was real. And I just I just love black women speaking back and clapping back and being like, no, you're not going to treat me this way. That was the entire show for me. Like the rest of the show, like I like kind of watched it, but I always had like yeah. the vines of Nikki going off 
on repeat. Right. And just I just kept like looking watching. through people's reactions. Like, yes. what more did you need? Like, you had everybody <laughs> like systemically this is why she did it and this is why it mattered so you mm-hmm. had like the like really intense like i'm gonna give you the like analysis behind this and then you had people with the gifts and the clapping and then yes. just like every possible form of expression which is why i love black twitter because mm-hmm. folks will give you like the serious stuff and they'll give you just you like joke everything. everything it's like oh wait we're like complex human beings who'd have thought hey um, surprise <laughs> weird <laughs> so yesterday salon um <laughs> tweets about it um, watch Nicki Minaj's savage, profanity-laden rant against Miley Cyrus. Savage. What a word. What mm. a word. I'm always amazed at, like, the inventive ways that white people find to say nigger without saying nigger. Right. Uh, Where, like, all the energy that should be spent seasoning food goes. <gasps> <laughs> True though. I so like Aeoli. True. Don't, don't. <laughs> <laughs> that was Ooh. the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. So anyway, the Nikki thing was amazing. And then another awesome part. <laughs> and like I, I'm purposefully doing the question mark voice at the end of it is because Kanye just makes me feel so many different things. So Kanye got on stage and he he was he just Kanye all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were times I was like, yeah, hell yeah, Kanye, tell him, tell him. And then he's like, I'm running for president. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> How do we get here? What's going on? What were your thoughts about Kanye's Kanye? Two things. One, Hotep Twitter a little bit. It was like they try to keep us down. Like they do. They mm-hmm. do try to keep us down. You yeah, know, all yeah. these different things. But it was in this very like loosely like, you know, I read a couple pages of like they came before Columbus and like <laughs> I'm gonna give you <laughs> now I'm gonna give you that real. <laughs> like, you know, like what? And also a little like drunk uncle, but like the drunk uncle that like makes good points every once in a while. I was like, Yeah. yeah. Yes. Hmm. That is a great description hmm. of Kanye. Right. Like I know you had way too much honey, but Yes. <laughs> kinda right. So if Kanye runs in 2020, first of all, who do you think his running mate will be? And secondly, will you vote Mm. for him? I feel like his running mate will have to be like a white woman because I think that he really alienated a lot lot of white women with the Taylor Swift fiasco Mm. of yonder, of yore. (laughs) That's not right. I feel like she's compensating for not having any black friends by just like shouting them out and like singing their songs. Yeah, when she brought like everybody on stage, Uh like somebody tweeted that she, the next person she's going to bring on stage is like a sentient church hat. (laughs) 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 Yeah, that's my friend Doreen tweeted that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Can I tell you who I think his running mate will be? Yes, please. A framed picture of himself. Oh my god! <laughs> West West 2016. <laughs> you know what? I would probably vote for him. I probably would. Why not? I mean, I'd vote for him over a lot of people who are running right now. Woo! True. But like, just thinking, even in like an alternate world of Kanye in like the White House and what mm-hmm. he would do in the White House is kind of a hilarious idea. Like Kanye would just mm. run up through there, like jumping around shit. Like yes, being like you know these curtains that have been here since like 1897 would make <laughs> a really great like I don't know parka. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um. oh, he would probably make like matching clothes for his whole family, like in the sound of music. <laughs> oh, a little yeah. Northwest running around. Oh, and the new baby because they have a new baby coming up. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for canning where <laughs> heaven could not. <laughs> we appreciate it. And please come back again. Thanks for having me. Of and course. thank you, Nikki. <laughs> yes. Praise Nikki. Praise Nikki. So you can find Hannah on Twitter at. Ethiopian. It's E T H 
I-O-P-I-E-N-N-E. And you can find our work on BuzzFeed at buzzfeed.com slash Hannah Georges, H-A-N-N-A-H-G-I-O-R-G-I-S. Fantastic. Thank you. See you next time. Bye. A while ago, we put out a call to you and your babies. We put out a call to your babies through you, our (laughs) listeners, to solicit some advice on how to be a good big brother or big sister for Northwest and her new edition coming up. And here's some of what your baby said. What is your name? Vi. How old are you? Three. How can you be a good older sister? Huggy. Huggy, how else? Kissy. I like to sing her songs, read her books. I like to hug her all day. Is there anything about your sister you want to say or anything about being a, a big sister that you want to tell people? Mm, I like to keep it a secret because it's a secret for me, for only sisters. What's your name? Damien. How old are you? Four. Help your sister get up and... And take care of her. Give her a toy. Give her a fluffy thing like a dinosaur. My name is Ames. I'm three and three quarters. How can you be a good big brother? I don't know. How does it feel to be a big brother? I don't know. What are some nice things you can do for your younger sibling? Not bite. Not bite. Okay, that's good. Dylan. How old are you, Dylan? Four. Are you a big brother? Yeah. Who's your little sister? Clara. What do you do if she tries to get in the pool without her floaty on? Save her. What do you do if uh, if the doggy's jumping on her too much? Do you keep the doggy away from her? Yeah, by running to her. Do you run fast? Yeah. My name is Callum McCabe. I am eight years old. I can help my brothers with their homework. It feels good being an older boy and it feels responsible. I can help them fit in at school. I'm Ainsley and I'm five. I can play with my sister. I can feed her bottles and hold her. I can make my sister a card. My name is Ava and I'm five years old. What are some nice things that you do for your sister? I can make her laugh if she falls. I will make her um, happy. What do you do when you see your sister fall? I just help her up, and if I get in her face, um, she'll hit me, but it's okay. Okay, what's your name? Frank. How old are you? Four. If you were going to tell someone else how to be a good older brother, what would you tell them? I would tell them to take care of your little brother and to help them and to protect them. That's nice, Frank. Sammy, what do you have to do to be a good big brother? Sammy, be serious or else we're not going to go to the pool. What are you going to teach your little baby sister? Doing funny talking. Doing funny, what else? Scout wool. 
eat her. I don't think the dog's gonna eat your new baby sister. Okay, what is your name? Sam. And how old are you? Three. Three. And what's your new baby sister's name? Dump truck. Let's not name her dump truck. That's a terrible idea. Hi, I'm Lara and I'm 10. What is something you like about being an older sibling? Well, aside from the part that my little sister has to do what I say, but um, I like it just because she's kind of little and I'm a bit overprotective and I like it because she's, you know, I just get to, she's little and I love her and <laughs> Can you tell me something nice that a person can do for their younger sibling? Well, if you wanted to be nice to your younger sibling, um, you could cheer them up with a hug um, or play with them because most older siblings, the older they get, the le less often they play with um, their little siblings. I know that from experience. My name's Freddy and I'm a four. Do you like being a big brother, Freddy? Yes. Why? Because I like my little sister. What things does she like to play? Cars. Is that because you like cars? Yes. Patty's favourite car is the Aston Martin of my special cars. Is she good with your special cars? Yes. Does she sometimes break your toys though? Tell me your name. Zenith. And how old are you? Three. To protect your sibling because she's fragile. When he falls off a roof, I'll catch him. When he falls off a roof, you'll catch him? Yeah. Hug him not too hard. I don't want to talk anymore. And if he's over, goodbye. Oh, baby. This is easily the best idea I've ever had. Uh, <laughs> thank you for easily. this. Easily. I've been like in baby fever mode for the yes. past like two weeks and whenever I see a baby I'm just like oh my god can I hold your baby <laughs> yes. that's what I want to say I don't ask strangers you know how people in are like always trying to pet people's dogs in the park yeah <laughs> I'm like that with babies but you cannot be like that with babies <laughs> ma'am can I touch your baby <laughs> just pet just his head it. smooth just head just snuggle your baby for two seconds thanks for sharing your babies with us thank you they're so magical much. Today in the studio, we are very excited to have David Simon on the show. He's the creator of a lot of shows you know and love, including The Wire, Treme, and HBO's new miniseries, Show Me a Hero. He's also the man responsible for the hours of small talk you've made with white people <laughs> about The Wire. <laughs> I, I can't be blamed for that. <laughs> welcome to the show, David. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> So we like to start all of our interviews with the same question. And that question is, what do you do and why? Uh, I tell stories because I'm not sure I'm qualified to do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> That's generally true. I, I, I practice to be a, a reporter, a newspaperman. And uh, I've morphed into a television writer and producer. I didn't intend that to happen, but it did. But the, the same logic applies. It's about telling stories and I don't think I ever learned to do anything differently. So Show Me a Hero is a miniseries that you can see all, all the episodes of now on HBO Go. Or on HBO. <laughs> That's how I watch it. Um, it's a real story based off a book by Lisa Belkin, a former New York Times reporter. It follows the story of Nick Wasisco, a mayor in Yonkers in 1987. 
and a federal judge who ordered that the city build low-income housing in the majority white east side neighborhood, which was like the middle-class white neighborhood. So that meant integrating the community and white people lost their shit, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it stars Oscar Isaac as the as the mayor, Nick Wasisco, and it follows that that story to its end, but also there are a lot of uh, secondary characters where you get to see like the people who are actually affected by this story. It's kind of like at the fourth installment that we hear the show title in the show. Yeah. Show me a hero and I'll write you a tragedy. Uh, what's the significance of that quote? What is that? Well, the quote was from you? Fitzgerald. He wrote, he wrote the quote uh, years ago and uh, it was the title of Belkin's book and I thought particularly apt. Um, the more you scratch at the story, you realize that uh, sort of uh, there are no specific heroes and yet there are many heroes to the, to the tale, but not in the places you'd expect them. Nick uh, Wasisco, who was the who was elected the mayor, he he certainly had no intent of being the champion of of this uh, desegregation effort, but found himself thrust into the center of it and and obliged to follow the court order. Yeah, he was in some sense uh, not not a moral hero, you know, some not somebody looking for the summit the moral summit here, but he grew and that was his journey. There were a lot of other people, neighborhood residents who were furiously opposed, who grew. And then there's some heroes that you just don't expect, like the bureaucrats, the people mm. who were charged with building the houses. You know, nobody, nobody loves a bureaucrat, do they? <laughs> but the guys who were trying to figure out how to build these houses so that they didn't destabilize the neighborhoods or they didn't, you know, induce white flight or, or, or lead to the, the kind of sort of housing mistakes of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that was a quiet revolution in public mm. housing that, that they won. So Yeah, this is a very rare case. <laughs> right. No, I mean, you know, there's actually been this, you know, I mean, you know, warehousing the poor in, in very compact, you know, uh, very isolated areas has always been an incredibly destructive, destabilizing thing. Mm. So the advent of scattered site housing and, you know, eight units here and townhouses and you control the house that you live in and, you know, you don't have to worry about what's in the stairwell or the courtyard. Mm -hmm. These were, um, this was a revolution that happened when nobody was paying attention. Yeah. And there's a lot of attention in the show to like that particular strategy. Incredibly. Like, you know, like, can you believe that they made a show about this? But, (laughs) but, but the truth is the, the, the white residents of, of East Yonkers were looking at the, the, the idea that public housing was coming near them and they were thinking of, of the mistakes of the past and they weren't attending in their anger and in their fear, they weren't attending to the reality that um, some people had learned some things and mm. were about to do some things differently. There's a point in the in the second installment where one of the councilmen says, not in my backyard. <laughs> he actually <laughs> says he, it. Yeah. Even the other councilmen are like, did you really, really just say that? Because they Come were actually going to put some of the units right behind his, his backyard. backyard. He was being literal. <laughs> but like, in saying it, you sort of catch yourself up with what, what, what a lot of the fear is about. Mm-hmm. Years ago, and a guy named Andrew Hacker wrote a great book called Two Nations, and he really documented there's so much social science research that says there is a significant plurality, maybe even a majority of white Americans that want to live in what they consider to be an integrated situation. They mm. want their kids not to go to an all-white school. They want, they want to be able to say to themselves, mm. my kid has you know black or Latino classmates, and, and, and I'm friends with so-and-so, and but th- there's actually you can put a number on it. It's it's, it's actually eight percent, eight percent. If your neighborhood goes nine, ten percent mm. people of color, 
that's when the for sale so signs much. go up. Wow. And they've actually documented it time and time again. So there is this dynamic in America that, that is like almost irrefutable. And you don't want to be the last guy out of the neighbor. You don't want to be mm. the last guy putting a sale for sale <laughs> mm. and, and lose your property values. So the whole dynamic of white flight is so f- the fragility of that. You can understand where the fears come from. You mix in the fact that with some people there's you know the genuine fundamental of racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a pretty potent mix. And it was for Nick Wasisco. He got he got torn up by it. As a writer, how do you write realistic dialogue when white people can be so cartoonishly racist? <laughs> well, <laughs> like you know, not in my backyard. You know, it, it's kind of it's kind of the problem. I mean, w- with the r- reality here is that people think we're being hyperbolic about the, what what's being screamed at those meetings or at the protests in the street. That stuff is pretty much to a line, accurate. I mean, mm. you, you can go back, you can look at the footage. You can go on YouTube and see some of the footage. Um, we're not being hyperbolic in the slightest. You know, at one point in one of those hearings, near the microphone, there was a guy wearing a KKK shirt. Wow. <laughs> and people thought, people thought that was like some sort of weird subliminal message on our part. No, there really was <laughs> one guy, <laughs> you know, who just, you know, to the discomfort of other whites, um, wore, wore a KKK shirt to, to the one meeting at the high school. Um, so we put it in there because we felt a fealty to what actually happened. So sometimes, I, what, I guess you answer your question, sometimes people are kind of cartoonish right? in, <laughs> yeah. in their anger. And and then when you get them off stage and they're in the quiet of a living room, or you know, that's that's where the, the sort of the more human dialogue takes place. Yeah. Uh-huh. By the end of this, I, I just found myself thinking a lot about what does political courage even mean? Like, right. what what have there been any recent moments in political history that you would categorize under that that idea of political courage oh a hero even (laughs) (laughs) Um, are there political heroes still you know i uh i I have a hard time with that um i think um there's right and wrong um but there's also political capital can only be spent effectively in a certain manner our current president is now uh speaking out against probably the thing that i've argued the most again probably spent most of my career arguing against which is the drug war and mass incarceration and, mm. and uh, zero tolerance. These are things that, as a police reporter, I encountered and turned me against um, our current sort of policing policy. Did he wait until the last two years of his second term? Yeah, because <laughs> yes. because in a way, now the time is opportune. You know, it's hard for me to criticize the the strategy. So. In answer to your question, you know, I don't think there's any pure courage in politics, in American politics, you know, where the currencies seem to be fear and money. Mm. Those, the, that's what people spend Ooh. successfully in American politics. If that's the currencies, then truth-telling has to wait for the margins, has to wait for certain windows. Um, and I credit it when it happens. It's happening now, at least on, on the issue I care about. But, mm. but man, it's, it was a long wait. This has been 30 years of war on drugs, 40 years of war on drugs and mm-hmm. and the demonization of, of, of the poor. You were um, a police reporter, mm-hmm. police beat reporter for a long time. What do you think has changed about the way we cover the police? If anything, you seem pretty skeptical about <laughs> what media can achieve. I'm, I'm holding up my cell phone <laughs> right now. The smartphone and its camera and, and the digitization and of handheld imagery is a revolution. Mm. Um, so not the reporting. No, no. I mean, listen. I was a reporter, and I, it's funny. I disappoint everybody. I disappoint people on the <laughs> left, and I disappoint people on the right because 
I respect good police work. I, I covered a lot of good police work. I, I spent a year in a homicide unit in Baltimore that was very functional. And I've also seen a lot of bad police work, either associated with the drug war or with street policing. Um, and when it comes to police violence, there are two fundamental truths, one of which is the drug war has made anything permissible on the streets and has destroyed probable cause. You know, the, the opportunity for a police officer to put you up against the wall, go in your pockets, mm. drop you on the curb, put handcuffs on you, stand around trying to figure out what to charge you with. Yeah. That's, that's life in Baltimore. And I don't know if you guys have read uh ta Coates, who's from my city and, and uh, he's actually somebody I admire a great deal. His experience in Baltimore is he hates the police. He's, he's earned that. I mean, that's mm. his childhood and that's his adolescence. And, you know, that's, that's, that's the battleground that he had to walk through uh, to become a man. And I get that. Um, at the same time, there's another book out this year by Jill Levy, a police reporter out in, in L.A., and she makes the point that, like, in Compton, in, in, uh, in Florence, in, in the African-American areas of her city, the clearance rate for murder are, like, 30%. Mm. Like, no, you know, when you, when, you, when you take a black life in South Central L.A., your chance of being punished for it... Right. Or is, is incredibly minimal, and and that leads to counterviolence, you know, extracurricular counter. I mean, it basically feeds the murder rate. You got to take care of it on your own because the police are not coming. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just no connection anymore in my city in Baltimore. It's astonishing. No connection between community and law enforcement. There, it's just gone. And the drug mm. war, I think, is the worst culprit. But if you're a cop and you it used to be, it's my word against yours on this corner. Mm. And maybe there's some witnesses, but they're going to have to run the gauntlet of a grand jury and they mm. better not be, you know, they better not have paper on them. And, you know, yeah. if they've got criminal histories, I'll knock them down. And I, yeah. if I can write better than they can talk, I'll get <laughs> yeah. out of this. And, and as, as, well, as police reporter, you knew this. I mean, yeah. you sort of knew that like, you know, one of the last tyrannies in America was always the police officer on his post, the individual officer. You're only as good as, as the individual officer. Mm. Uh, and, and that was sort of sad for the guys who did, who were trying to do the job straight. You know, guy comes on and he's beating everybody up and throwing people around. And then you come on the 12, you know, you come on the next shift four to 12 and everybody's at war with you and, and there's no way to do good police work. So it's always been a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, but now with, with these things, with the, with the smartphone, mm -hmm. it's not just your word against mine. It's, Hey, look at the video. Mm -hmm. It's up yeah. on YouTube. And yeah. that, that's a revolution that, that, that goes beyond uh, reporting. Yeah. A lot of people uh, call you cynical. <laughs> There's a point in, um, th I think, the second episode where the lawyer for the NAACP says, I swear every time I worry I'm getting too cynical, I see I'm not even keeping pace. I was like, mm. hmm, is that David? <laughs> <laughs> Do you identify as cynical? Yeah, I wrote that line. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't identify as cynical. I, I, it's funny. I, I, I feel as if I'm a realist. And I'm not willing to opt out of the idea that good governance has to be the solution here. That like, okay, you know, a lot of people embraced the wire because they thought it was some sort of libertarian argument against, oh, well, you know, listen, government can never work. Mm -hmm. and, and he's he's basically mocking. No, I'm, you know, listen, the critique of bad government is the fundamental response, first responsibility in democracy. Um, but the end result in my mind always has to be better yeah you know it, and by the way it never gets perfect and it's always a constant fight to make it better than it was yesterday and if you give up the fight it can always get worse um but it's unrelenting and it's never going to be fixed it's only going to be a, uh every day you get up and you you know you kill another snake mm. but i don't i don't feel the slightest bit cynical about the notion that it is our government 
Your blog is called The Audacity of Despair. <laughs> Which is amazing. I feel like if I were to make a mixtape tomorrow, that's yes. what, I would, what I would want the mixtape title you know, to be. Uh, a very, a, a very, speaking of cynicism, a very cynical piece about me in The, um, in the Atlantic uh, years ago that was, um, I thought, very insubstantial. Uh, use that as a headline <laughs> with a, with a, fra- a great with a, fr- name, with a frowning picture of me. This is right after o- <laughs> right, this is right after Obama's uh, autobiography came out. I thought it was just like you know what I have to embrace that. You know, they're, they're making me they're making me uh, angrier and more dyspeptic and more uh, hostile than I actually feel. But I guess the way to counter that is to play with it. And I thought, this is pretty funny. I'm going with it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> In a recent interview with Slate, you said everything is not the wire. In response to like this question about uh, right. white people kind of channeling Baltimore. Well, there's a, there's the a lot of good story. stuff in the wire, and certainly I think it's a very good critique of the drug war. And, and there is stuff in there about about uh, the excesses of police violence. And, and but do you ever want to just like tell people like white people to chill out? Well, <laughs> I, what I want to tell them to do is you know that it's lazy to strain everything, everything, every mm. new headline, every new event, just because it's it's black folk in Baltimore. There's a lot. Listen, I, I don't mean to disfigure the wire either. The, we, we made the wire. We thought it meant a lot. We, we wouldn't have spent five, six years doing it if we didn't. Uh, and there's a lot of good stuff in there and you should watch it. But, but you don't need to strain every dynamic, you know, right. through a, a fictional television show. You can attend to it first as facts on the ground, to, mm-hmm. you know, as public policy today and as, as an argument to be had right now in, in, in the public wheel. And do that. And, and, and then, you know, maybe five, six years from now, somebody will make some fictional narrative into, you know, or some art or some, some representational art about Freddie Gray or about what happened mm. now or about, or about, the, about the, 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 the uprising and then the riot. Art has its place. But why are we reaching back for this one right. piece of art to, to explain everything in Baltimore when the Baltimore dynamic is incredibly complicated and subtle? Mm. Why do you and, think people do that? Because it's just their reference point, and because people are lazy. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a lot of commentary that's lazy. I, by the way, there were other people who wrote, you know, the wire can't answer Freddie Gray. You know, I don't mean to suggest that that that, that we um, we failed to explain something that or, or failed to acknowledge some of the, some of the terms of engagement. But man, you know, Freddie Gray's right in front of you. This moment's right in front of you. This indictment's right in front of you. This uprising, this anger, um, this sense of disempowered, you know, humanity. Let's attend to that first, and then and then afterwards we can c- come up with all sorts of reference points. Don't go rocketing first for the old television show that mm. that you think explains everything. You've written a lot of shows and miniseries. It seems like it now. <laughs> yeah, at the time, they all happened one at a time. But yeah, I feel old now. Thank you very much. What has been the makeup of your writing staff? Staff. This Staffuses. plural has given me a hard Staffs. time. <laughs> well, it's changed over the years. Um, How has it changed? Uh, well, I tend to pick up people who know the world that we're writing about. Mm. Uh, I have some core people that I've made a lot of TV with. Um, Ed Burns, Dave Mills, uh, George Palkanis. I tend to tailor the writing staff to the universe we're writing about. And I try to get local cooking, home mm. cooking. Certainly, if it's an extended project and you're making stuff up, yeah, you know, make sure you have people from New Orleans in the room mm. to to counter any you know sort of presumptions. So, yeah, in an interview, I think from 2006, you talked about how you tr- you tell whoever the casting people or the 
whoever's in charge of this <laughs> to like try to only give you uh, spec scripts or whatever from African-American writers? Yeah, I would love to, listen, I, I, I love to champion um, people if we can find voices that can work uh, with their dynamic. I have to say, our scripts are the least like television. Right. So it's, it's hard like, to write a spec script it, for that. It, for, right. I mean, we're sort of running counter to a lot of things that work in television and they mm. don't work on our show in the sense that you may notice we don't exactly pull audience with the greatest of ease, <laughs> but it's what we want to do. And so there are a lot of good, aggressive uh, black writers, Latino writers uh, who are, in, are completely engaged in LA mm. or New York trying to write their way into, into, the, into an industry that I'm trying to write my way out of the industry. I'm trying mm. to write my way away from, I know I'm in it. I know that I'm part of the entertainment industry, but I'm, I am trying to do something that is you know, yeah, I know the script starts really slow and I know I have a three-page <laughs> scene of bureaucracy, but, you know, I needed to tell the story that I want to tell, not to tell the story that would be a good TV franchise. Mm. So you're basically asking people to unlearn everything that they've... So I tend not to hire people who are trying to become television writers. I tend to hire novelists uh, or people who have never written television. Like, uh, one of the projects I'm working on now, which is... Uh, the last volume of the King trilogy mm -hmm. uh, by Taylor Branch uh, at Canaan's Edge. You know, uh, the people in the room are Eric Overmeyer. That's my one concession to guys I've worked with who, you know, can help me produce. Uh, and then it's Taylor, and then it's Ta-Nehisi Coates, and then it's James McBride who won the National Book Award mm -hmm. for um, the, the amazing John Brown book, um, and me. There's nobody in there that woke up one morning and said, I want to be a TV writer. <laughs> yeah. You know? and, and, and that's why I'm interested in it. Yeah. Because, that's refreshing. Because, it, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it's like if you woke up one day and said, I want to write hour long TV dramas, there's a little part of me, maybe it's a, I don't mean, he's going to sound like a, 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 a snob bastard. He's a safe but, space. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's going he's gonna to sound like a prick, but, but he, he's going to, well, I, there's something wrong with you then. You know, you should have had some better ambition. So um, I tend to hire those people, but I mean. So uh, do you like just go to ta and be like, I know you've never written a TV show. That's exactly <laughs> what I did. Trust me. <laughs> I, you know, but, but I've been reading his, his essays. There's mm. nobody smarter on, I mean, here's the other thing is that when you get into African-American writers, it's hard when there's only one of them in the room because they're sort of being obliged to, they're, there's, oh shit, I'm the, you know. I mean, David Mills, who my, my, one of my oldest friends, we worked on the college paper together and who wrote, I mean, I wrote my first hour of TV with him. Mm. You know, African-American writer, uh, heartbroken. He died when we were filming Treme, mm. very young. But um, he used to call himself the lone Negro because mm. he said, you know. We know that feeling very well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you're the only guy in the room and, and you know, and, and the room is, it's, it's people are trying to be benign, but they're basically like, you know, and what do black people think? They yeah. turn to you and you go like, uh -huh. well, they think a lot of shit. And they, yeah. You know, and, and it's. And and we don't all agree, and you know, and and we think different things at different times, and so you know, it's interesting because McBride and and Tanahasi, James Tanahasi, they don't agree on everything, mm. and at the same time, that's great because I mean, you, the the room has to be collegial; it has to be, it has to have affection for disagreement, for argument, mm. or, or or the argument argument makes it better, mm -hmm. and certainly you know the white guys aren't agreeing with everything, so in the end, what you're hoping for is not even quite perfect consensus. You're hoping to have it all represented somewhere in the script. So, you know, Coates is astonished by the idea of nonviolence, that, that like mm -hmm. anybody could put up with that. 
you know, Same. to his, well, to his <laughs> right. sensibilities, you know, he's watching, you know, things like Selma or, or even earlier, the stuff that, you know, people go, the Freedom Riders and all. And he's mm-hmm. like, who lets wow. themselves get beat? This, mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's the son of a, of a Black Panther and, and he has a dynamic that is, you know, one of the most th- thoughtful, you know, his demeanor is not revolutionary, but his thoughts are. Yes. And so it's interesting to watch his dynamic. Whereas, you know, I think, James is more of, of sort of the black church and, and the and the whole essence of of the heroism of of, of nonviolence is more rooted in him. Mm. And Taylor was there. You know, Taylor t- Taylor was sort of there in the moment, uh, in in Mississippi and Alabama and and, uh, and so he has a, a fealty to the facts as he knows them. Um it's an interesting dynamic to watch watch the room sort of work. But, you know, I've had situations where um, one you know one guy in the room was being asked to do too much. How do you get feedback about something like that? Are From, they like honest with you, being like, "I can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I can't keep being the go-to or something." Um. Well, I mean, da- David Mills and I, you know, I'm sorry he's not around anymore, but he, he, we we were friends for so long we'd sort of moved past race. Mm. You know, and never like, oh, I didn't notice you were black. That, <laughs> it was, you know, it, but it was more like, um. We'd had so many discussions about so much stuff, and 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 he was kind of all over the map. He had moments of of absolute um, sort of racial assertion, and other moments where he would turn around and sort of mock racial racial assertion as being, "Oh, that's bull-. like," he would turn on what he thought was cant or or tripe mm. in a in a heartbeat. You know, whether it was white or black, he he was a really, you know, he he wanted to be his own thought. It, we we were in absurd situations where I would be defending something sort of almost reflexively as, you know, I'm a lefty and it was, it was landing in my lefty wheelhouse of, well, this is this and this is this. And he'd be like, oh, bullshit. That's just bad parenting. And I'd be like, Dave, <laughs> you know, you're supposed to have my back. Go, why? You know, why? So, I mean, there, there would be moments of, of where, of role reversal. So like when you work for, with people for a while, after a while you're working with people mm. and not, nobody's in the room representing anything. And, and that's when you do your best work. Until it gets to that, I, you can't know. You can't know what people are holding back. Did you guys read that amazing thing about about Wyatt? Yeah, uh, his and, interview and, with uh, yeah Mark Maron. Yeah, yeah, because here he is in the room alone, and it's it's a benign room, and they're trying to be, but you know, he's actually calling them on something that's not going well, mm. and, and and they should have left. You know, it was probably a bridge too far. Listen, comedy is, you have to be out on the cutting edge to do comedy, to do it well. And so you're going to risk falling on, so, okay, so here's a moment where Jon Stewart, maybe, you know, this wasn't as funny as he thought it was. And maybe yeah. this had a, a you know, uh, uh, it was leaving a taste in people's mouths. It was, mm-hmm. was, he might, you want to think about this before you, you go there again. And I'm reading it and I'm thinking the only sin here on anybody's part is that they got mad and they stopped the argument. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that's, that. I mean... I think if they let that argument go on and, the, and until the argument until it spends itself out, and they find consensus by letting everybody get you know, shutting it off and have and walking away from the argument and leaving that in your writer's room, yeah, like they say, never go to sleep angry at your spouse, mm-hmm. you know, never walk out of the writer's room when an argument's getting good. Mm-hmm. Let the argument play out. You'll get to a place where everybody can stand if everybody's of goodwill, but if you if you shut it down because it's dissent, uh, I think that was probably the, the moment where. You know, that that's where they that's where John Stewart lost a good writer. Yeah. You know, you know yeah. at that moment. Do you ever wonder 
if you are the right person to tell the story? Yeah, there's a lot of stories I don't try to tell. They're not my stories in the sense of uh, I'm not interested in, in the dynamic as much as I should be in order to give a year or two or three mm. to developing it. You got to love the story for what it is. If what you're getting at is uh, here's a white guy and he's telling a story and it has a lot of black characters or here's, you know, he's, you know, I, I didn't ask to be a reporter. I wanted to be a reporter for a newspaper and the biggest newspaper in my state where I grew up was the Baltimore Sun. And I went to the Baltimore Sun and they made me, I, I walked in the door, uh, I wrote my way in onto the paper as a stringer and about a hundred bylines and a year later they offered me a job and, and they put me on the police beat. And so all of a sudden I'm a white guy and I'm in a city that's, you know, 60% African American. And I got to learn to hear voices and, and attend to stories and narratives and people who are, who are not like me, uh, and who had a different dynamic, uh, and, and the government there has a different, and, and by the way, the cops aren't like me, you know, the cop, you know, I'm not, I'm not Irish or Italian and uh. I'm not, you know. I didn't come up the way they came up. Mm. And, and so I'm a suburban kid from outside of Washington, D.C. And so I had to learn things outside of myself. And, and that was my job, and I took it seriously. If they'd have made me some other kind of reporter, I, the wire wouldn't have resulted, you know, you know but I wasn't a Marine either, and I didn't go to Iraq. And at mm. some point, that got, the, the nature of war got interesting to me and young men at war, and, and so I wrote that story. Did I want to have Evan Wright in the room? Yeah, I didn't want to try to write that without Evan Wright. Mm. Um, or with Ed Burns, who'd been to Vietnam. Um, I wanted those two guys in the room with me. Um, but I've I've lost patience with the idea of like, these are only, you know, that we all live in, in our respective ghettos. These are only black stories. These are women's stories. Right. Thank God they let the men write the women or we wouldn't have Madame Bovary, you know. <laughs> thank, thank God they let the Gentiles write the Jews or we wouldn't have Schindler's List. You know, at some point, at some core value we are all more alike than we want to admit or in the fact that we're human. Are there things that I've missed writing because I'm white and I'm writing characters who aren't white at times or who are not men? Yeah, I think I actually did a poor job in my earlier projects of writing women because I paid less attention to women mm -hmm. of any color than I had to anybody because... I don't know, a lot of guys, like, the less they know about women, the better when they're younger, you know? Like, you see, maybe it's in curiosity or maybe it's fear. But, mm -hmm. like, I'm not sure I actually want to know what you're thinking. Because then I, I then think I, it's fear. Then I might have to reflect on myself in ways that I really don't want to, you know? Let's just pretend that, you know, you're you're thinking like a guy and I can write you that way. As, I'm, as I've gotten older, I think I've gotten better at certain things. But I just, I can't. I can't credit the notion of, of we're all going to write, you know, because eventually you follow that logic to its, to its remote ending. And the only guy that can write a, a story about a redheaded Inu, Inuit, you know, lesbian is a redheaded Inuit <laughs> lesbian. And, and, you know, there is a, there's a terminus for that. And, and, it, and, it, and it's almost inhumane in my mind, the idea of, wait a sec, you know, I'm in this city and should they have hired a, uh, uh, an African-American police reporter in my place? Maybe, you know, that's a, that's a fair question. Like, mm. why was the Baltimore Sun hiring me, you know? Mm. Well, I gave him 100 bylines, and I, you know, I, and I wrote my way onto the paper sort of aggressively, and, and so I could play at the idea of a mer it's a meritocracy, but hey, they needed more black reporters to cover Baltimore City on the city desk, and they didn't get them, you know, on some level. 
I guess I've just lost patience for that because like these are stories and I just, I want to tell them. I, mm. I can't. I How did can't. you learn to write women better? Um, I grew up some, and by the way, I'm, I'm still, you know, you approach, I approach every scene with a little voice of terror inside me going, you know, this is her scene, not yours. And mm. See if you can get out of the way, schmuck, you know, cause, <laughs> cause you know, I'm not suggesting that I've, you know, I've become, uh, the best possible writer in all respects, but I have to write scenes where there are women in the room and where the women have POV. And uh, and the other thing to do is to have, again, have, we're about to start a project about Times Square in the 70s and 80s when, when it all went to shit, when it all went to porn, mm. and, and that industry came up out of nowhere. Suddenly porn was legal, Some Ooh. suddenly. So, the, you know, where... <laughs> Sounds interesting. And it's sort of, it's about the pioneers of an industry that was about to become a billion dollars and, you know, ubiquitous in American life. You know, I started the project with George Pelicanus, two white guys, um, because the story came to us over the transom, and it was it was largely in the POV of this one sort of mob front who had ran a lot of Forty Second Street in those years. But as we started to expand the story, we realized we got to get women in this room, and we got to get enough women so that they can argue forcefully and from different points of view. Because there's no way we're writing the show without women. That that would be you know, that would just be a form of insanity. Um, and you know, part of, part of what happens is you, you write a scene and you take a risk and then, you know, you show it to, you show it to a colleague who's a woman and she says this, this, but who, not this, (laughs) you know, stay away from me. You know, what are you thinking? And, 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 and the argument, again, argument makes it better. When a, when a writer's room isn't arguing, Mm. something's gone wrong. Scared of this part. This is like a This is like a Rorschach test. Or something. <laughs> this is my favorite part where I have to tell important people the name of this segment, which is pew 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 pew. pew. So these are finger guns. Rapid fire is the rapid idea. fire is the thing. I don't know that I'm that rapid. <laughs> well, um, you absolutely do not have to be rapid. Okay. Um, so a question that has become customary for us to ask everybody is, how do you feel about squirrels? Rats with tails. <laughs> we'll Excellent answer. Great, great <laughs> answer. So this is this question is particularly near and dear to my heart. I have been trying to figure out from, I feel like I know at least like three people who have met the president. I always ask what he smells like and everybody's like, oh, I don't know. I didn't notice. And it's, it just breaks my heart every time. So please don't break my heart. What, you were interviewed by Obama. Yes. What did he smell like? Uh, he smelled tall. <laughs> wow tell me more what does that mean he's just a really tall guy and like when you meet him you're like holy shit you're like really? yeah it's sort of like black lincoln like oh <gasps> damn you are tall you like know? And, over six foot oh yeah, yeah. oh my gosh i, would I say, never considered him i would tall. say like six three six <gasps> i mean he's he's tall and, i'm swooning I'm and so swooning. it's like you're already looking up like you're already sort of I mean, I would be this way for any president, to be honest with you. You meet the president of the United States, like, you know, I'm looking at the president of the United States. He's, mm-hmm. he's as far away from me as you are now. Mm-hmm. When you have to look up to. Wow. You know, that that's sort of like that, oh, my God. You know, I, I just felt like I was a grade school kid for a moment. Like, there were moments <laughs> like in the middle of a sentence where I'd be looking at going, I can't remember how to finish <laughs> the sentence because I'm looking at the president of the freaking United States. Oh, my gosh. And he smelled tall. I like that. I yeah. like that. That's an excellent yeah. answer. It's the best answer that I've gotten from anybody who's met <laughs> the president before. You have two first names. Do you ever 
wake up and you're like, today I'm going to go by Simon David. <laughs> um, there's a little part of me that wants to go by my, the real name before Ellis Island uh, was Simonowski. Mm. He's Russian and uh, from, from what is now Belarus, from Minsk. Uh, and I, I often want to restore that mm. because I think it makes me sound even more lefty, more trusty. <laughs> yeah. It they, definitely does. <laughs> yeah, that, at that point, they know that I'm, they know my affiliations when they hear Simonowski. They know, <laughs> the Jewish liberal bastard. You know? <laughs> so there's times where I want to go back to that. Mm. What's the last show you binge watched? Sopranos. Mm. Um, I didn't watch it when it was on the air because I didn't want to have it in my head when I was doing The Wire and we were sort of contemporaneous uh. of each other. But I went back and saw The Sopranos uh, and, and went through those box sets uh, at a pretty good clip. That's great work. That's a, it's a meaningful show. I still have not seen The Sopranos. Yeah, it's worth it. I know. It's worth it. I know. It really is. It's, he, there's something really dark and very disturbing that he has at the core of, of sort of the American experience that he got through those characters. It mm. is just... You know, it's a pretty timeless show. I'm sold. What's your favorite song to sing in the shower? God, it's probably a Pogue song. Uh, I love to sing uh, Thousands Are Sailing in, mm. in the shower. It's really embarrassing. <laughs> but, well, I can't confirm that it's embarrassing because I don't know the song. Yeah, oh, so. it is. And by the way, and I put on like this little pathetic Irish brogue. Oh. With like, you know, with, I don't say the THs, I just say the Ts. And, you know, and like sometimes my wife walks in and, and I, she looks at me and just, you know, with that look that says, you're really not Irish. And you also can't sing. Did you work upon the railroads? Did you rent the streets of crime? Were your dollars from the White House? Were they from the five and time? 2016 elections are upon us. Who do you hate the least? Um, or who excites you? I mean, maybe? obviously, <laughs> I'm, most of my positions are the left of the Democratic Party, so I'm probably going to end up voting for the Democratic nominee. I, I worry about Sanders and his, his ceiling. What do you mean? Well, he's a declared socialist, and so am I. Um, but I don't know how that can possibly play with the, the mass of the electorate. I think that's a losing hand. Mm. I'd like to hear more from uh, uh, Jim Webb who's a centrist from Virginia, in some ways maybe a little too centrist for me, but he was one of the early guys out against mass incarceration hmm. uh, and, and, and the need to back off from zero tolerance. He was early on it, and I admired that at least. I, I, wish, I wish Hillary was doing a better job of seizing uh. the moment. Uh, I think her, she's laid back long enough, and if she's going to be a good, viable, strong candidate, she needs to make her case. On the Republican side, I feel the need to be... Uh, sort of have some equanimity here. Um, the, only one of those guys doesn't sound insane to me. <laughs> uh, uh, Kasich from Ohio, you know, he's a little, he's to the right on some issues that I'm, I disagree with him, but he's been a functional governor and, 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 and he seems to... Functional. His, his, <laughs> his sentences makes, they, they, they follow a logical course. They're, they're, they're sort of devoid of the usual demagoguery over mm. on that side of the political spectrum. So... I'm a pragmatist. I just want to, it can always get worse. <laughs> it can always get worse. You know, if you think that, you know, you, the, the purity of your vote, you know, for the candidate, candidate that doesn't violate your sensibilities on, on half a dozen issues, you know, this guy, this guy thinks everything I think. And therefore, you know, I got to, I, I just want to win. I don't want to lose. And even if winning is with a small W. Mm. Um, there's a lot of Springsteen in Show Me a Hero. Yeah. What's your favorite Springsteen jam? Oh, God. Um, 
Was that like all you, the Springsteen? <laughs> no, you know, actually, it's funny. We try. We were trying for a voice of Nick, of of because mm. it's all. It's never like, with a couple of exceptions, where uh, where it's mostly him pressing the jukebox or his car radio, mm. and we were like, what is his tonality in these years of '88? You know, he's a white one year as a cop, white ethnic politician, New York area. And we tried a bunch of different stuff. And I, the thing I originally tried was I tried all this old R and B because you know how like <laughs> you know how like white guys like when they're like you know like he would never be listening to anything he would like hip hop wouldn't have penetrated his right. world at all not it, at it, all no but but you know they go to a party and the, you know they're happy to put on Otis Redding or you know whatever mm, whatever yeah. or, or, or Motown you know the, the yeah. standard yeah, white yeah. entree point <laughs> so it's like. So we did it with all this old R&B, and I liked it, and I was arguing for it. And, and Paul, Paul Haggis, the director, said, you know, it's making – it's implying a racial camaraderie that we don't – that isn't there in the beginning, that, we, mm. that, that isn't earned. Let's try something else. And we tried various things. and We tried heavy metal, which is actually what the real Nick liked. But like, Really? Yeah, there's nothing thematic about ACDC. Yeah. So, <laughs> sorry, there isn't. So, I mean, you know – Guns and Roses. So yeah. eventually we got around to, we tried, what about Springsteen? And it felt like, wow, this is the voice of a guy who thinks he's on the side of the angels, you know, mm. who, who comes into politics and thinks, you know, because there's that that very genuine populism of the Springsteen stance that would mm. have appealed to a guy like Nick. So it's not really art. Like, you know, in my mind, it's like, I'm not, I'm not championing Springsteen here. I'm, Nick is, mm. and, and it's working for Nick. You know, you get to the projects, it's 1987, 88, you want to hear, you know, Public Enemy or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and um, but around, this is Nick's story. And, and when I'm around him, I kind of wanted him to have a musical voice. What's my favorite Springsteen song? It's probably something off Nebraska, something really dark and depressing. <laughs> Johnny 99. I mean, the Springsteen made sense to me. It's like the mustaches, the yeah, sweats. Yeah, right. I mean, it just fit. It just fit. And, and the one we worked back from is there's a song that, oh, God, uh, Lift Me Up. It's from, he wrote it for a, uh, a film, another film um, by John Sales, I believe. And uh, we put it to the last sequence. And it, it fit astonishingly. And mm. once you see, I don't want to say what the last sequence is, but like once we put it in that sequence... We worked back, and we were like, you know, yeah, okay, so now he's in the car. What's out? It's now 87. Okay, so the river's out, but this album's not out. Well, let's listen to track by track. What would he be listening to in the car? And all of a sudden, it was like, you know, this is Nick. This is Nick. And then, of course, I called his, his widow, Nye, and said, did Nick like Bruce Springsteen? And she said, no, he hated him. <laughs> oh, said, my God. I said, okay, we never talked. Where can people find you? Where can people find your work? Anything um, coming up that you would like to promote? Uh, no. I mean, Show Me a Hero will be in, in, you know, you can go to HBO Go and it'll still be available for a while um, now that it's uh, run its course. You know, people find my stuff years later. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the MO is they got to The Wire years later. They got to Generation Kill years later. Uh, hope one day they'll get to Treme. Um, <laughs> I, I love Treme. You always love the children that nobody loves, but I love Treme. <laughs> And uh, and I think you know this one. Uh, hopefully, it'll get some shelf life because it's still going on right now. It's mm. you know it's contemporaneous. The, the whole dynamic of a segregated America and these two separate nations is 
is endemic and it just keeps happening over and over again. And until we solve that, you know, we're not going to get very much right in, in our mm-hmm. cities. And uh, I hope they find it. So, I, you know, go to HBO Go or, or go steal the box set from, you know, wherever. <laughs> wherever the they were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are still things. Um, so America and the King Years and the Times Square show, that's still in development. It's pilot yeah, stage. Uh, the, yeah, the King thing is... Uh, the scripts are we're working on them now okay in fact i'm 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 the bottleneck on that i got to deliver a script <laughs> yesterday <laughs> okay uh if i had to guess i'd say that's probably gonna come out for the anniversary of the assassination 18. okay and then uh i'm about to shoot the pilot on uh for the Times square show and then i got another pilot order on a, a capitol hill show that's coming up next year so okay at some point a lot somewhere around yeah. late 16 maybe i get something out or maybe not. Maybe I just keep getting pilot orders and, mm. and never getting anything too serious. You know? Well, we are excited to watch and see what happens. Me too. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let you know when we know. Please do. Please do. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you for having it me. It was a it's pleasure. Yes, this was fun. Thank you so much. Yay. Come back anytime. All right. It's that time again. What time is it? Time to buy some rounds. Rounds, rounds, rounds. Who are you buying a round for? I am buying a round for the reality television series, Flavor of Love. Oh, God. Do you remember Flavor of Love? <laughs> Who could forget? Oh, my <laughs> God. So that was such an era of each one. The golden years is what I like to call it. Okay. The golden years <laughs> of reality television. I rewatched the first season because it's on it's Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> It's on Hulu. Mm-hmm. It holds up, man. It's still good reality TV. <laughs> so wait, a little bit of background in case no, in case our some of our listeners have never seen it. If you haven't, stop everything. If you are at work right now, leave. <laughs> Go home. To watch Flavor of to Love. To watch Flavor of Love. <laughs> Tell your boss joking. that. <laughs> so VH1 had a show called The Surreal Life where they had just like a bunch of like washed up celebs hmm. all living in the house together. And on like season three of that, I think, Flavor Flav lived in the house along with Brigitte Nielsen, who is an actress, right? Mm. They like fell in love on the show. And like they had, yeah, having just made a face. Mm. Yeah. They were popular and just like weird enough to mm. get their own show. Jesus. Their show was called Strange Love for obvious reasons. Okay. <laughs> so they broke up. And so VH1 decided to help Flavor Flav find love. And so that led to Flavor of Love. It's basically The Bachelor with Flavor Flav and his like big clock and like all these ridiculous clothes and he's yeah. in this house of like twenty five girls and he gives them all these ridiculous nicknames because he couldn't he was like, I'm oh not gonna God. be able to remember their names. And they had names like there was Red Oyster, <laughs> there was Sirius, there was like apples and bubbles <laughs> and just like ridiculous names, right? And this is also where we are introduced to Tiffany New York Pollard for the yes. first time. She is who I'm familiar with from this. Uh, it was just such good, engrossing TV. And, like, it was dramatic, but, like, not in a sad way, sort of. <laughs> because, like, the absurdity of the show, like, let you, like, engage with it without, like, feeling bad for humanity overall. I mean, like, I felt a way mm. when I would see, like, women kiss Flavor Flav in the mouth. That's not... <laughs> That made me sad. It did. But Didn't like that happened like every episode. Yes. Uh, and like he would like open like his entire face uh, would just become like an open mouth. Right. Oh my and it was God, just Tracy. I don't recommend anybody watch those scenes. Anyway. <laughs> but like I like a lot of like trashy reality TV shows mm-hmm. today. 
But like a lot of it is just like because it's positive as if like these are the lives these people actually live. So like mm. Basketball Wives LA, for example, mm. there's this old ass woman, Jackie Christie, who is just like insane. And she spends all of her time trying to be friends with like little 22 year olds who don't like her. Mm. Even though you know that a lot of it is probably scripted. It's just like, yo, your, your life is sad. You mm. know, like if this is like. It does make me sad. Yeah, but Flavor Flav is like, yo, you're talking to girls named Oyster and Bubbles <laughs> and you're wearing a Viking hat <laughs> on a romantic date to KFC. Like, I can laugh at this, you know? Yes. Like, everybody knows that it's absurd. It was just so good. And it gave us so many other great television shows like it. So there were three seasons of Flavor of Love. Mm-hmm. That led to New York having her own spinoff show, mm-hmm. I Love New York. There yeah. were, I think, two seasons of that. They had a very genius stretch And there was, like, Charm School? Charm School, you're right. They did a couple seasons of Charm School Yo, where VH1 they... VH1 milked this shit. They milked <laughs> the hell out of it. And I watched all of it. I really did. So... I just keep thinking about how lit Twitter would have been if it existed. <laughs> in 2006, Flavor and yes. Love, Flavor Love was on. Uh, it would have been so good. Oh my god, you should watch. You should make like a watch party via Twitter. Yeah, see if we can all just like get together and like hit play Twitter at the same time. <laughs> 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 Maybe I might try to do that. But this yes, is like another round TV club. <laughs> I'm I so into that. I don't Yay. understand why more people don't have TV clubs in general. Would you like to rewatch it with me? You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. That's fair. That's fair. But this is like the ultimate in pop culture comfort food for me. Mm. It's great. So around so for Flavor for Flav. Flavor Flav and all of his contestants and every show that it gave birth to. I mean, made I, my I life think it so also spawned VH1's interest in making shows about black women in the, in the yeah. vein of... So we can either so think VH1 or blame. VH1 made a lot of money off of that. Woo! Listen, when it's time Shout for reparations, VH1. VH1 better cut a Yo, big check. <laughs> VH1's portion of the reparations tab <laughs> is huge. Outlandishly large. <laughs> Who are you buying around for? I would like to buy around for Carly Rae Jepsen. Oh, or yay. as, oh my God, Tracy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let me live. I will permit you to live. As my roommate likes to call her. Carly Slay Jepsen. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Which I will allow. Wow. She just released her newest, her second album, her sophomore album, <laughs> Emotion. If you're like me and you enjoy like infectious bubblegum pop, like, happy music mm-hmm. which is very opposite from who i, I am as a say. person <laughs> this is how i get it in my life you know okay i don't naturally produce it <laughs> <laughs> but it's so good it's like really good crush music hmm. she had her single which everyone heard uh, i really really like you which i loved Tracy's man, Tom Hanks, is also in the video, which is interesting. Cool, cool. Like, I have a very unreasonable crush right now. Aww. And I find that that song is perfect for my life right now. (laughs) Baby heaven in love. (laughs) I'm right here. I'm not baby heaven. I'm sorry. But, like, the whole album is, like, 80s summer, like, rollerblades. Maybe you got, like, Mm. a basket with your bike, like riding around you know like that's the vibe i get honestly this should have been released at the beginning of summer it's a very Mm. summer album Mm -hmm. so the title track is this song called emotion and i was just like walking down the street just like belting (laughs) it's so good It's just so beautiful. It's so cute. It sounds like if 
if Lisa Frank made music. Oh my God. <laughs> you ain't lying, but <laughs> it's great. It's a little like Lisa Frank meets Paul Abdul, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I am buying my round for Carly Slay Jepsen. Yay. I'm excited for her. Someone also tweeted me Carly Bay Jepsen, which I will also allow. She's so cute. Everybody is adorable. <laughs> uh, more shout outs. Shout out to David Simon, who I cannot believe Yo. that we talked to and like shook hands with. That's and gave crazy. us like a long interview. Yeah. Thank you for being generous, sir. Thank you so much. Also, shout out to the Pod Squad. Pod Squad. Eleanor Kagan, who was here with us at the crack of dawn this morning. We appreciate <laughs> you so much. To um, Jenna Weiss-Berman, who just got married. Yo. What the hell? She's got a wife. It's so crazy. Uh, She's an adult. And shout out to Julia Furlan. Who is also on vacation. She yes. is on her way to Europe right you guys, now. guys, we all deserve vacations. Vacation. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Paul Ruest. Shout out to Heaven. Shout out to Tracy. Yay. Shout out to our musicians, Miss Jean Grey. You can follow her at Jean Greasy on Twitter. And Donwell, who you can follow on Twitter at Donwill. That's D-O-N-W-I-L-L. Shout out to everybody who interviewed their adorable baby friends for us. That's Allison McCabe, Jesse Baker, Sarah Blackwood, Betsy Pedrago, Dan Coyce, Jennifer Bell, Erica Barnes, Dorothy Robinson-Scott, David Lightfoot, Rebecca Rosen, and Laura Coates. Um, shout out to Balloons. But I like balloons. They make me happy. Okay. When's the last time you had like a bunch of balloons? It's been a while. It, it has. You're right. I'm gonna buy you a balloon one day, just because. I really appreciate that. It's gonna be a purple balloon. <laughs> oh my god, Tracy, that's so sweet. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. As always, you can find us on Twitter. I'm Heaven Rant. Heaven like. I believe in you. You got this. You got Heaven this. like the place I was named after that I don't believe in. Uh huh. Rants like the only verb people use to describe Kanye speaking. Mm-hmm. That's heaven rants, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Brokey McPoverty. That is Brokey as in sad times <laughs> and McPoverty as in sadder times. Yes. Y'all, I still have an iPhone 4. <laughs> <laughs> I feel really embarrassed about Tracy. that. Please do. Please do. And if you like the show, rate us on iTunes and leave a review if you feel so moved. Yes. And follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. At another round. <laughs> and email questions and just general advice you would like at, to another round at BuzzFeed.com. Yes. Call your mom and them. Take your meds. Drink some water. Do some stretching. Invest in a nice robe. Oh. I just got a nice robe, guys. <laughs> if you're ever wondering what I'm doing, I'm in my room with a candle lit in my robe. In your robe. Probably like scrolling through the Tumblr. <laughs> but yes. Robes are the move, guys. Okay, get a robe. Get I'll, a robe. I'll work. Treat on yourself. That. Bye, have and have fun. Thanks. I'm Bye, so guys. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Love you. Woo! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Woo>. Hands. Ah. <laughs> hands. All right. You just put your hands in the air and go the hands. <laughs> Okay, can you please say your whole name and how old you are? I don't know my whole name.